This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. Get in, kids. We're headed back to Spice World. Doom Part 2 is here, and it's the year's first big movie. Denis Villeneuve's sweeping, soaring space epic stars Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya, and it delivers plenty of spaceships and big explosions like any good sci-fi blockbuster should, but the film also tackles themes of rebellion, religion, and the use and abuse of political power. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Dune Part 2 on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is Waylon Wong. She's the co-host of NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator, from Planet Money. Hey, Waylon. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Also with us is NPR senior editor, Bilal Qureshi. Hey, Bilal. Hey. Great to be here. Great to have you. Rounding out the panel is filmmaker, pop culture critic, and iHeart radio producer, Joelle Monique. Welcome back, Joelle. Hey, Glenn. Glad to be back. It's always good to have you. So Dune Part 2 is the follow-up, of course, to 2021's Dune. Timothy Chalamet returns as Paul Atreides. When last we left Paul, he was stranded in the desert of the planet Arrakis. He's being protected by the Fremen, Arrakis's native population. A group called the Harkonnens have seized control of the planet. It's the only source in the universe of the spice which makes interstellar travel possible. Javier Bardem plays a Fremen tribal leader. He seizes upon one planted prophecy that suggests someone who acts a lot like Paul might be the savior who will lead them all in an uprising to shake off the yoke of the evil Harkonnens. The warrior Chani, played by Zendaya, isn't buying the whole prophecy thing, but she is buying everything else that Paul is selling. Maybe you could be from it. Maybe I'll show you the way. New additions to the Dune Part 2 cast include Florence Pugh and Austin Butler, who plays the sinister Fade Reltha Harkonnen. He's gunning for Paul. And Stellan Skarsgård returns as the evil Baron Harkonnen. Like the first film, Dune Part 2 was directed by Denis Villeneuve, who co-wrote the screenplay with John Spates. It's in theaters now. Well, let me start with you. What'd you think? Yeah, I loved the spectacle of this movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, I found it really immersive and visceral. I really felt like I was watching a movie with a capital M, you know, (laughs) and I kind of just let myself be like swept into kind of just the spectacle of it. And then I ended up having a great time. I feel like like the costumes and the sets and the action sequences and the performances like added up in a really satisfying way for me. I found it to be kind of more exciting than the first one, which I enjoyed a lot. And I just really liked the weirdness of it. I mean, Frank Herbert built this like freaky little world in his books. And I liked that the movie isn't afraid to lean into some like very odd touches, you know, that he imagined. Mm-hmm. I felt transported. Is that corny to say? I felt transported to the desert planet of Arrakis. I had a great time. All right. The desert planet of Arrakis transporting. I get it. Joel, what about you? Waylon, not corny at all. I think spectacle <laughs> is 100% the right word to use. It is mm-hmm. so much larger than the first movie. The first movie doesn't feel small, like really exploding sure. outward. I love the pace of this movie. Yep. There's so much time happens over the course of this film and it moves. Mm-hmm. You don't get too often the feeling of like, why am I here? What's happening next? Like, it's a lot of movement. I will say for me personally, I still prefer movie number one just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I missed a lot of the pensive conversations <laughs> and the slow pace was really working for me. But if uh-huh. you are uh, an action film junkie, congratulations. We've got dope choreography in some of these fight <laughs> scenes that are so amazing. It's true. And so many more women doing so many cool things. I really love all the additions mm-hmm. to the cast in this new film. So it's fun. I'm excited for the next one. I really enjoyed the ride. 
still, I, I did miss the uh, the brooding. Yeah, the brooding. The brooding. There it is. The there it is. Yep. Yeah. Part three hasn't been hasn't been officially announced yet, but boy, that ending kind of sets it up, doesn't it? It's coming. Um, Bilal, you gonna hop on this sandworm with the rest of us? I mean, there was no choice. You had to be on it, whether you wanted to be or not. Um, I mean, it was definitely to what everyone has said a great ride, and that popcorn bucket is really the perfect symbol for what this really all is. You know, that really yeah, it definitely encapsulates uh, the experience. I would say that as a huge fan of the first film mm-hmm. and not having read the novel before I saw it, I was really uh-huh. interested in the mystery and this cultural clash that the first film set up. And I thought the brooding and the moodiness of this planet that was outside from which people have now been exiled to Arrakis was all very interesting in setting up something that turned into something a bit different in this film for me. And so I think for me, I felt a little bit of a tension between the fact that I love this Fifty Shades of Beige world and I'm really into it um, and I, I can get into the sort of like costumes and the, and the moodiness. But I did feel like the ideas in this film, which really come to light, I think, with this part, um, which I think is where maybe the weirdness of Frank Herbert's book has been described, mm. were rubbing me the wrong way here because I think that this is obviously based on the Arab world and it's based on... Islamic history as well, and some of those references are used. And I just had some questions around some of these things that were going on. But then, yeah, the sandworms were there, (laughs) and you could just let go. So I felt a tension between the visual pleasure and the ideas in this project. But we can get into that. Yeah, let's get into that. Because, I mean, I I hear what you're saying. But first, let's let's say that I read the book, several of the books. I was very impressed with how much texture – He's adding to this story with the movie. This movie is a richer text than the book. And that might seem odd to folks who know the book because it's got this great thick, big hunk and glossary and all these appendices. So I don't mean richer in terms of lore or world building because these films ignore entire swaths of lore. And I was happy. I was here for it. Um, I just mean richer in terms of characterization and motivation, the human stuff you need to ground, all this stuff you talked about, the visually dazzling, the technically impressive spectacle. Mm. Shani, uh, played by Zendaya, is a great example. In the book, she's a badass, like she is here, but she kind of falls for Paul right away, and then she kind of follows him around like a puppy. And here, she's allowed to be a more rounded character. She has an inner life. Mm -hmm. The book tries to give her an inner life the same way it gives everybody an inner life by just italicizing their thoughts. (laughs) In the David Lynch movie, he did it all in voiceover. Here, they do it with acting. I thought that was great. (laughs) Trust me, Bilal, in the book, the Fremen are this monolith. Here, they're not. They're divided into factions. Javier Bardem gets to put some spin, some of his charm into like the three jokes that the movie has in its script. And he kind of, he deepens the characterization from the book. Even Paul gets a scene, which would never happen in the book in a million years, where he kind of goes over at one point to where Chani and her friends are like, and he's like, so what are you guys laughing at? <laughs> and I was like, oh, suddenly there's this high school movie breaking out in the middle of my sci-fi epic. That's when I knew I was in good hands. But can we talk about the Zendaya of it all? I mean, she was a huge part of the marketing of the first film, but we only really got to see her in that first film, these kind of weird visions that look like a a Dior commercial. (laughs) Here she steps into her element. What'd you think of her and Timothy Chalamet? Capital A acting. Yeah. (laughs) Like really fully invested in this character in a way that I think kind of blows everyone else out of the water. Mm -hmm. I was so enraptured with what she was doing that I was like, can we spend more time with her? Like, I want to see her, you know, lead her own counter rebellion. I want to see just her do her daily activities. Like she's so fascinating to watch. There's a a moment where Paul kind of is making maybe his first 
big swing with her and she turns and she's like stop looking at me like that <laughs> and to see her like swing from very intense warrior in training to like lovesick schoolgirl so quickly i was like man to your point i was just like oh i'm in really good hands like i'm really invested in this arc yeah, I was also very like besotted with the Chani character and excited to see her get to do so much more stuff than she did in the first film. And I think for me, I also liked what they did with her character because she is very skeptical about Paul's messiah narrative, right? She's not buying it. She doesn't participate in some of the religious fanaticism that seems to overtake other characters, most notably Javier Bardem's. Mm -hmm. And I think I really enjoyed having that skepticism because uh, for me, the kind of chosen one messiah narrative gets subverted in this film in a better way than it does in the novel, yep. where you're actually not sure of people's motivations and whether they even believe some of the stuff they're saying. Yep. At least I didn't feel like I knew whether Paul was truly the fulfillment of this prophecy, whether the prophecy was even worth anything. And I think Chani's almost like that audience surrogate that is kind of keeping you on your toes because she loves Paul so much and she's so invested in him, but she's not buying this part uh -huh. of his story. And I liked that tension that was in the story because of that. Uh -huh. You cat Zendaya because she's great and you want her in your film and she's amazing. It was interesting to me in this film, the colorism of it all, maybe there's this through line of uh, her telling Paul, you can hang with us. You can be one of our group, but you will never be of the desert. You will not be us. Yep. It's a real push and pull as religious fanatics are pulling him in and like, no, you're our leader. Paul's struggling with I recognize myself to be an outsider, but also I have skills, I can help. And really for the film to try to draw this line, I thought casting a black woman in this role was an interesting way to explore that narrative and I think deepen it and make maybe make it more sharp than it might have been in previous adaptations. I think for me, one of the questions I had was that she is sort of the only really... I mean, aside from Javier Bardem's character, who has a lot more comedy sort of that he's able to provide in the beginning, she's really the only one talking back about this planet and its tribes and its people and their perspectives. And I found the descriptions of like the tribes being fundamentalist, easily prone to sort of like uh -huh. exploitation and mythology. And she, I was just a little disappointed that she was kind of the only one that sort of had that role in this film. And that in the new edition of cast members, Extraordinary, you know, Pew, Lea Seydoux, Austin Butler, you know, I, I feel like Zendaya was in the first film. Could there have been more perhaps people of different racial backgrounds added to this film's cast that are not just, frankly, a vague chorus of brown people kind of shaking in the background. Mm -hmm. I found it a little bit unsettling, to be honest with you, because I feel like that was a critique by some critics of the first film. I think there was an opportunity to, if they are going to make a screenplay adaptation of this for 2024, to potentially add a little more nuance and a little more inner life to some of the characters who are here. But she's the only one, really. She kind of, you know, is such a solo presence in my experience of this film. No, I hear you. The film does gesture towards setting up some kind of generational divide among the Fremen. Uh, she's uh, the younger people and we, we it's implied that uh, there's a lot of people on her side, but then it's demonstrated that no, she's the only one uh, who feels that way strongly. Mm -hmm. Lots of people came out of that first film, as you mentioned, convinced that Paul is a white savior. Lots of people came out of the book uh, thinking the same thing, which is why Herbert right. wrote the follow-up, Dune Messiah, to make it more explicit that no, Paul's a fanatic who is leading his people to hell. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting exactly what you're saying, Bilal, because the first movie, we see that there are competing interests at work, but he is concentrating on telling Paul's story to get him to Arrakis. But in the second movie, 
I would say that I think it becomes even more explicit that the film is about the exploitation and manipulation of people like the Fremen. Right. Because it is saying that there are systems in place. These systems have been in place for generations, does this sound familiar, that exist to exploit and manipulate not just the Fremen, but people like the Fremen. It's a pretty bald anti-colonialism, anti-white supremacy metaphor with terrible optics because you've got these brown faces looking up at a literally blue-eyed white guy who is not only white, you know, it's Chalamet, he's alabaster. Well, that's, I think, where the tension of it being a film, right? It's like a visual experience and, you know, it's it's ultimately going to be an experience on the screen. I read about the next books, which maybe the sequel will finally kind of bring this to a close, that, you know, this is a very problematic character. And I think... This feels a bit like The Two Towers to me in the sense that there there needs to be a third film to kind of see what happens. Uh-huh. But the film is a visual experience, and that means mm-hmm. the images yeah. and the faces and the sensory of it all. And I also feel like, you know, the costuming and a lot of the marketing is like Rebecca Ferguson and Berber jewelry and kind of veils. Uh-huh. This is part of the marketing and the packaging of this film, 100%. which I think people raised as questions in the first one. I was a huge defender of it as a person who is brown and I was like I don't actually I feel like this movie has something really interesting to say about these questions but I feel like in this uh-huh. it's a little bit less comfortable mm. for me so it was like a letdown like you were hoping they would like go in a certain direction explore some themes in this one and it didn't it didn't go there for you I mean maybe cast more Arab actors even and I don't think everything needs to be perfect there needs to be representation perfection but I do think that this book I mean you know the, some of the best performances in this film are given by the deserts of Jordan and the UAE so mm-hmm. shout out to them you know <laughs> like I, <laughs> I I think the landscape and the culture of the North African and sort of cultures of, of that this world is based on are doing a lot of work and bringing a lot of the mystery and magic to this this storytelling I, I just feel like that needed to be fleshed out more but screenplay was not the point this was a this was submersion in a kind of world building mm-hmm. but, but all to your point when I was leaving my screening someone turned to me like I don't understand why she was so mad at Mm, Paul. mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, I I agree with you. There's definitely an optics issue. And I think it's interesting because what the movie has to do is not only subvert the chosen one trope, but also subvert the aura of Timothy Chalamet, who's the lead, right? Because I think that you automatically, like, your brain is, like, feeling that pull of, like, he is the hero, he is the unquestionable hero here. The film actually has to do the work of making you question that, and I think maybe for some people it doesn't get all the way there, right, in in conveying that. And maybe I had the benefit of having read the novel. I was primed to be skeptical in a way that other moviegoers, if you're only kind of you know, interacting with like the aura of Timothy Chalamet, you're not going to feel that all the way. Yeah. I mean, Villeneuve did take a risk, especially with that first film, I think, because for years, for decades, people said this book was unfilmable. And then uh, David Lynch's Dune came out and people said, told you, because uh, (laughs) that film didn't work because Lynch is going to Lynch. What Villeneuve does is he loaded this up with like star power with Rebecca Ferguson, sure, but Timothy Chalamet and you cast Oscar Isaac, the internet's furry boyfriend. And he's just so soulful. And he strips away a lot of that lore to tell Paul's story in a very clear and simple and very familiar chosen one storyline. But that leaves you open because then you get people's coming out of this second film going, well, why is everybody so mad at Paul? He's dreamy. And that's, <laughs> that's the risk because exactly what you're saying, well, because of the visual aspects of this, it's attempting to subvert something without subverting it. Well, now it's got many other new internet, you know, hot things, right? Can we talk about the Austin Butler performance? Because I did feel like 
I mean, he wasn't really even, I don't think, around when, in my mind, when the first film came out. So it's like, this has truly, mm-hmm. you know, managed to really get, I mean, Florence Pugh and like, again, Lea Seydoux also, as I mentioned, who's not in it for that long, but this is a pretty extraordinary cast mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. young Hollywood in one place. And I think his performance too was, I liked the extent to which he kind of camped out and, you know, was campy. Mm -hmm. The sections with him were, I would have liked to have even seen a little bit more of that because he was actually quite fantastic in this film, in my opinion. And um, I'm curious what what you guys thought of that too. Yeah, he was, what if Stellan Skarsgård was slithery? Because he was doing a Stellan Skarsgård impersonation, but he was also camping it up. You humiliated our family. You humiliated me. Or die. I really liked it. I, I had a moment kind of um, what you were thinking, Bilal, where I was like, oh, I wanted to see more of him. And then I was like, could we have introduced him in the first film? And I'm like, mm, I'm not sure it would have worked. And so I ultimately I'm satisfied with what we got, which was essentially like a Fade Routha short film kind of plopped in the middle where we suddenly go black and white and you got to spend a lot of time with him. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. You know, it was kind of like an unexpected choice to have this kind of big diversion where you spend so much uninterrupted time with him. But I I really liked it. I thought it was like very cool. Okay, I really wanted him set up as like a real counter to Paul in a way He's essentially the active big bad of this film. He's the one who's able to like go out and make plans and is really stopping Paul from accomplishing some goals. What if we had opened with the bad guy instead and and really gotten to luxuriate in his, he's so deliciously evil. I wanted more of it. Uh Well, you, you tell me, did you guys find the ending satisfying? Because I mean, you know, it is setting up a part three, even though part three hasn't been greenlit yet. Okay. I found Paul's mom, Rebecca Ferguson's character (laughs) gets a moment where I was like, Okay, she's bad, but I love it. <laughs> it's really great. Again, I love, love a villain. And she got to really be in her villain bag for a moment. Rebecca Fergus is like just delightful in that type of role. Um, and so I really enjoyed that uh, yeah. final duel. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's, it's not that whole consuming feeling of like, I got to rush out of the theater and talk about like, what's going to happen now? Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. repel me into theory corner, which, you know, I felt it was okay. I am looking forward to movie three, but it, I think it maybe could have been more. Mm-hmm. I was satisfied with the ending. I liked the note that it ends on and a note of kind of ambiguity and a note of unfinished business. And so, I mean, I am desperately hoping for a third movie, yep. but I, I like how, how this ended. It definitely does feel, though, like you need that third one. It's not meant to stand by itself. Yeah. Well, I, I think to me, the like complexity that Frank Herbert wanted us to understand about the, the savior kind of narrative is I, I feel like it needs to be resolved for me as a viewer. And, and I do think the um, some of the things that I've raised for me that are questions are actually going to be in that third film. But it did feel to me like this is a trilogy and we've just seen part two. I want to be on the sandworm in the palanquin that Rebecca <laughs> Ferguson gets, like this little pod thing. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're all on board for a part three for different reasons. Uh, the real question is, are we all on board for part 17 or so when there's no. Earth? worm human hybrids and the wheels fall off the bus, but we'll see. Tell us what you think about Dune Part 2. Find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week? Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. 
Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Waylon, kick us off. What do you? What's making you happy this week? What's making me happy is the return of a podcast that I thought was a one season, one and done, but then it came back after a years long hiatus. It's called the Open Ears Project. It's out of WNYC. It's a classical music podcast, and the way it's structured is they bring on a guest for each episode. Sometimes it's someone very famous like Tom Hiddleston. Other times it's just an interesting creative person or a thinker, and they talk about a piece of classical music that means a lot to them, and they tell that story of why it's so meaningful, and it's a monologue, so it's not an interview. They're just speaking in an uninterrupted way about why they love this piece of music, and then in the second half of the episode, you hear the piece in its entirety. Uh It's just really lovely to hear people talk about things that move them, and it's really well produced, and I think classical music can be really overwhelming, and if you want to get into it, sometimes you don't know where to start, but this is great mm-hmm. because it'll be like, here's a piece of music that means a lot to me. Maybe you'll like it too, and then you just get to hear it. Mm-hmm. So that's the Open Ears Project from WNYC. Great recommendation. Joelle, what is making you happy this week? Okay, so I have been in my reading bag since last year. I'm trying to read five books a month. R.F. Kong is my favorite writer working right now. I'm absolutely obsessed with her. And I finally got the first book she came out with called The Poppy War. Oh, my gosh. Uh, A devastating read. Difficult, I say, with a capital D, but also Mm -hmm. deeply profound. I think the way she explores oppressed people's rage is really interesting to me. It's something I think I get from a lot of Black feminist writers, but not a lot in my fiction in a way that is this deeply satisfying and this deeply thought-provoking. She uses traditional Chinese mythology and um, religion and storytelling and imbues it into all of her stories in such a lovely way that really has exposed me to an entirely new world of uh, fantasy and religion and culture that I'm deeply inspired to explore further. So uh, I can't recommend The Poppy War enough. It's a trilogy. It's beautiful. If you finish those and need more, you should read her next book, Babble, which is my favorite thing. Love, love, love. So that's Poppy War by R.F. Kwong. Excellent. Excellent. As you can tell, an enthusiastically received recommendation. Thank you, Joelle. Bilal, what's making you happy this week? I think this time before the Oscars is actually wonderful for those of us who like going to the movie theaters because so much stuff is playing in the theaters and things have been re-released. Or So what's making me happy is in the assortment of things that you can watch. I saw... Uh, the Taste of Things, which was France's entry to the Oscars, and it didn't get nominated for the International Feature Film Oscar, but I thought it's one of my favorite films I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been marketed as a kind of like, don't go in hungry, it's a movie about food and two chefs who live in 
19th century France in, um, in a farm. And Juliette Binoche is in it. So it has a lot of these things that may seem like your cliche kind of international Oscar submission. But I found it to be a really stunning kind of film and, and thoughtful about relationships, about creativity, about making art. Um, it's beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. Part of the like, what's making me happy is just the, the range of things that are playing right now, which includes Dune 2 and includes The Taste of Things and The Zone of Interest. And so you can really have quite a, a range these days. And so I, I enjoyed, um, yeah, enjoying that as a part of a kind of fixed menu of, of things available these days. I mean, yeah, this is a popular film. It's so popular that Aisha picked it for her, uh, What's Making Us Happy Recently. So that is The Taste of Things. Thank you very much, Bilal. What is making me happy this week? Daisy Quest, D-E-S-I-Q-U-E-S-T, is a Dungeons & Dragons actual play YouTube show with an all Daisy cast. Great performers that I know from Critical Role and Dimension 20, Anjali Bamani, uh, Omar Najam, uh, Rika Shankar, and Sandeep Parikh from uh, The Guild, and the DM is Jasmine Bolar. So if you like D&D, but you want to expand beyond the kind of Eurocentric tonsures and tunics medieval vibe... Mm-hmm. This drops you into a gorgeous world inspired by the mythology of the, as they say, the Indian subcontinent. The players are bringing this deeply shared cultural references to their gameplay with such passion and such humor. I'm loving this story. I'm loving the players. I'm loving the characters. And I'm learning a lot. Um, At one point, this character is trying to persuade this other character to, to do something. And it's going fine. The dice are with him. But then he decides to call this other character uncle and everything just changes. The vibe goes completely <laughs> off. And it's filled with moments like that that are so wonderfully specific. That is Daisy Quest on YouTube. I can't wait to check that out. Wow, that sounds goodness. amazing. Oh, it's so good. That is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. And that brings us to the end of our show. Waylon Wong, Bilal Qureshi, Joelle, Monique, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Glenn. Oh, thanks. This is so fun. Thank you so much. Of course. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fatima and edited by Mike Katziff. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. Engineering was performed by Patrick Murray. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all next week. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps Podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper how to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.